0: Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at OrganicValley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. It has to get all of its
1: energy from the sun has to get all of its water needs from the rain that falls on the site that it has. It has to treat its own waste. It can't be toxic and polluting. It tracks the sun. It opens and closes. It responds actively to the environmental conditions around it. And above all, it's beautiful and inspiring. And so that's a perfect metaphor for what our buildings need to do.
0: It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. In many ways, humans have been acting like aliens on our own planet. We build and live in shelters that disregard nature in its ways. It's almost as though we're trying to live in a bubble, divorced from our surroundings. It's a whole different kind of housing bubble. Only in the 1990s did the building industry begin seriously measuring how the way we build impacts air, water, and climate. The statistics are startling. According to the Green Building Council, every year buildings in the United States are responsible for a whopping 39% of CO2 emissions, 40% of national energy consumption, and 13% of water consumption. Clearly, changing how we build and retrofitting what we've already built can make a real difference, including mitigating climate change. But how? Visionary architect Jason McLennan is already constructing a future where cities are not only places to live, but also places that are alive, dynamic habitats that mimic nature's ways and engage with the environment without negative impacts. His bold vision is carrying us across a threshold to a home that's finally at home in its place on planet Earth. Join us for the next half hour for Planting Buildings, The Living Building Challenge with Jason McLennan. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature.
1: What I see when I look around our cities is the manifestation of a set of ideas that we've had for some time now, that machines are the future. And I think that we have, what we've seen is the explosion of technology that has been meant to separate us from nature, right? To somehow make us feel like we are separate, that we are better. And now what I'm hoping is emerging through practices like biomimicry and other ways of thinking that we're seeing more of the idea that technology can bring us back closer to nature, to realize, of course, that we're, we are nature.
0: Jason McLennan is an architect and designer who literally wrote the book on green building. The philosophy of sustainable design has been required reading at 60 universities across North America and is studied in Europe. As a champion of interdisciplinary solutions, he wants the green building industry to raise the bar. We can start by engaging biologists at the design table and by adopting social equity and environmental justice principles. These steps, he says help reveal nature's blueprint for building a better world, which is hiding in plain sight, right outside.
1: The Green Building Movement has finally realized that we have had some empty chairs at the table, that the level of information that we need to get to where we need to go can't be found merely in the minds of architects and engineers, as great as those minds are, and that it's time that we reached out across the aisle, so to speak, and found people in other disciplines that have a piece of the story to bring to us, and that's really exciting.
0: McLennan serves as CEO of the Cascadia Green Building Council, covering the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Western Canada. He designed the Living Building Challenge in 2006 to provoke green building colleagues to rethink building standards. Why?
1: We're the only species that when we build our habitat, we create a net negative in terms of opportunities for diversity and and health in nature. And so the question is, what would we have to do in order to build a living building? And so what we talk about is that buildings should be like flowers, because if you think about the metaphor, they're both rooted literally and figuratively to place. And a flower is habitat as well for other microorganisms. It has to get all of its energy from the sun, it has to get all of its water needs from the rain that falls on the site that it has. It has to treat its own waste. It can't be toxic and polluting. And it tracks the sun. It opens and closes. It responds actively to the environmental conditions around it. And above all, it's beautiful and inspiring. And so that's a perfect metaphor for what our buildings need to do.
0: Buildings like flowers, rooted in place, responding actively to conditions around them alive that got people's attention but how to measure it the living building challenge provides new and different metrics it looks at the interactive aliveness of a building a park a whole neighborhood mclennan's metaphorical flower has seven petals that represent seven integrative building performance categories site water energy health materials equity and one more beauty. McLennan has pollinated each petal with standards to meet the challenge. The new bar is to meet or exceed the ecosystem service nature provides. Energy, food, clean water, and air. One example is energy requirements.
1: One of the most obvious ones is net zero energy. The minimum compliance is that the building generates all of its own energy with renewable energy on site. So you can't Bring coal and you can't, can't use combustion. And so it uses solar panels, wind turbines, or any other options that it has to, to generate all the energy for the building.
0: The challenge also compels green builders to design for water independence. In their plans, they must consider water availability, quality, and the larger impacts of climate change. McLennan admits that net zero water use is an incredibly high mark to meet.
1: It requires a completely different way of thinking about resource use, and that's one of the things that the Living Building Challenge does. It's a completely different design assignment. You have to change the way you think about design and building use, and you have to think like a plant would have to think in terms of, these are the resources I have. I have to grow under these conditions, and life is created. We don't do that when it comes to our buildings, our infrastructure. We assume we can always take from somewhere else. But if you had an assignment to design only based on the resources that you have, you would look at all your decisions differently in terms of how do you use energy and how you use water. You certainly wouldn't be using the, the types of water treatment systems that we have where we take a small problem when we go to the bathroom, we put it in a big tub of water and create a large problem, and then we flush it away, and now we have to use chemicals and energy to take the problem back out of the. And it's a, it's a challenge. And in doing so, we actually kill all the nutrients.
0: An eco-friendly addition to any green bathroom is a low-flush toilet, but there's a yawning gap between the goal of saving a few gallons per flush and meeting the challenge of net zero water.
1: There is a building where I used to live in Kansas City, Missouri, that essentially has no water bill. It has, a, has no sewer connection, and it's connected to technology that is called a living machine, which is a biological waste treatment system that basically replicates a, a marsh, and swamps and marshes are nature's way of cleaning waste. So what this building does, it collects water off the roof and stores it in a cistern. That water is used to flush toilets. Instead of that water then going away, it stays within the building and goes into this living machine where there's no chemicals being used, and microorganisms and plants see our waste as food, clean the water, it then goes back into a cistern in a completely closed loop and flushes the toilets, and the rainfall just tops off the water that's needed. Now, this has been done in in other facilities around North America as well.
0: Architect Jason McLennan extends his flower metaphor even further. He calls it planting a new building. A living building is required to be beautiful, inspiring, and educational. Built with appropriately sourced materials from responsible businesses that reuse and conserve. Built only on previously developed sites, not near virgin prairies, old-growth forests, or sand dunes. Not built on wetlands or prime farmland. Projects must be designed to feed the human desire for natural shapes and patterns, Light and space, and to give occupants the opportunity to literally feed themselves by growing food on site. It's impossible,
1: really, to create a holistic green building system and not take into consideration food. We have moved away far too far away from having food production systems that are local, that are rooted to place that are healthy not only for the people eating them but for the animals and for and for impacts to soil and water and it's it's crazy what we're suggesting in the living building challenge is a very simple ratio based on density the more dense your project um, the more you're supporting public transportation and more you're supporting a walkable community the less food you have to grow there because the space is used for other things but the less dense then the more food you need to grow and so what we're basically saying is we need to do away with the giant front lawns and back lawns of those need to be gardens (laughs) and if you want to live on a half an acre you better have chickens but if you want to live in the city in a four-story walk-up then you don't have a lot of space for chickens maybe Um, But uh, maybe you have a window box.
0: Like a flower, a living building interacts positively with its immediate environment, with the soil it's planted in, with the water it uses, with the air quality in and around it. Then there are the environmental impacts of materials and processes used to create the building. This interaction includes all the people who are involved, from design and construction to production and manufacturing of all components and parts, right to the owners and inhabitants.
1: A lot of it has to do with, for lack of a better term, embodied equity impacts. In terms of how the materials were made, where they were made, and by whom, and the conditions upon which they were made, there's a ton of equity issues associated right there. Uh, And they're hidden. When you and I go to the hardware store and we buy something, we don't see behind us, just like we don't see the trail of carbon or toxic releases, we also don't see the impacts on local communities and indigenous peoples and, and on you and I in ways you know, that we're not aware of. And so that's one way at the building scale where understanding where things are coming from, making sure that they don't contain toxins. For example, we have a red list in our protocol. And we need to get rid of these carcinogens. We get rid of them for you and I. We get rid of them for the workers that are making it as well. And we get rid of them for the people that live next to the factories, which often are poor people next to factories.
0: In 2009, McLennan released the Living Building Challenge 2.0 with a new category to address equity issues. Requirements for living building certification included building on a human scale in a human place accessible to all members of the public, regardless of background, age, or socioeconomic status, and fostering a sense of community by building social justice into each project. When we return, the Living Building Challenge draws inspiration from nature as it instructs builders, designers, and homeowners how to re-inhabit our home, planet Earth. This is Planting Buildings, the Living Building Challenge. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at pioneers.org. As the most advanced measure of sustainability in the built environment today, the living building challenge is also a yardstick. It reveals the gap between its preferred standards and the current barriers of technology, commerce, culture, and government that hold back innovation. In the process of planting living buildings, innovators have tested all sorts of limits – health and safety codes, disclosures of material contents and chemical composition, and zoning laws and municipal policies. The laws of nature are one thing. They're not negotiable. The laws of people are different. Jason McLennan spoke at a recent Bioneers conference.
1: We were part of this effort in the state of Oregon recently where both rainwater collection and graywater reuse were technically not allowed. And what's interesting is there was this facilitated meeting where one of the living building project teams went through and they did this flow diagram. And they showed all the ways that water is going to be used in the building. So you have toilets and sinks and and all these different ways. And they used a bunch of cartoons to illustrate it. They had met with different departments, public health, city, county, and basically illustrated all the different special permits, exceptions, barriers, and you know, all these different things on this one picture. And said, this is for Oregon, the regulatory map of hurdles of why we don't have more water conservation in this state. And then what they did is they got everyone together in a dialogue. You'll like this. <laughs> they got everyone together in a dialogue, the public health officials, Code officials, etc, building department, architects, engineers, and walked through this process, and what's interesting is that in, in several instances, one department would say, "Well, we're not the ones that have a problem with this water use. it's that department." And that department said, "Well, we don't have a problem with that. We think it's cool." And they, they said, "Really?" And three regulations were changed literally in that one meeting. It was other departments isn 't that cool? And so now you can capture rainwater in the state of Oregon, and you can use grey water.
0: Since people make the rules, people can change the rules, as they have in Oregon. The goal of net zero water helped a previously unconnected group of stakeholders come together in an integrated framework and write better, more flexible standards into state law. The Living Building Challenge is helping make change in the green marketplace as well. PVCs, CFCs, lead, and formaldehyde are banned on all projects. Using that standard, builders can exert a subversive pressure on product purveyors and manufacturers for full disclosure of these and other chemicals on their red list. And
1: we're also finding out because of our red list, even certain products that are being marketed as green are still full of toxic stuff, right? Because a lot of the standards might look at a certain criteria, VOCs but then they ignore a whole host of others. And we're finding out that there are sneaky ways to rename chemicals like formaldehyde, and people think they're buying formaldehyde-free something, and what they're actually buying is formaldehyde by another name. (laughs) And we're finding this out, because the manufacturers have to sign off that none of their products contain these chemicals and they don't want to be legally responsible so they're having to reveal whether they have these toxic chemicals in all these living building projects. Isn't that kind of cool? (laughs) What we're finding, for example, are things like this. You thought when you were buying your lead-free door handles or your lead-free pipes, you thought that meant that there was no lead in it. Boy, are you dumb. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I was dumb too. What it turns out is if you have less than 8% lead, you can call it lead-free and market it lead-free. Because that was the deal that was made. But now we're saying to companies, do you really have lead? And they have to tell us. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of lead. <laughs> just, there's just a little bit, 7.99. Why seven point nine? Because 8's the rule. <laughs> For some products, we're learning right now, there's no way around it. You can't build a building. So what we do is we say, okay, we're going to treat that as a temporary market exception but we're not gonna like it. And so the, the team has to write letters to that manufacturer basically that says, we're specifying your product, but we don't really like it. And we're putting you on notice that as soon as you or one of your competitors make something without this, you're gonna lose our business. And so this is a, an activist campaign at the same time. Right? And so what we're talking about is more transparency, more activism, right?
0: By transforming owners and builders into sustainability activists, the challenge has turned the issue of cost per square foot on its head. The process is driving new products and markets. But McLennan admits there's no simple calculation for figuring the cost of a living building. Yet by factoring in elements such as energy and water savings, equity and beauty, McLennan offers a different budget for building a community with a whole community in mind. A fool, the saying goes, knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing.
1: It really does depend on what you value. If you take an average sort of American home that might have a two-car garage and might have one of those bonus rooms above it, it's interesting that if you were to kind of lock that off, and for the same size of the, of the real house, put solar panels on your roof, you could have net zero energy for the same price. So does it have to cost more, or is it that you feel like you have to cover both your cars and have this bonus room so you can store more stuff that you don't really need?
0: In addition, cities and states across the United States have found innovative ways to offset the higher upfront costs of retrofitting homes and buildings with renewable energy. Financial mechanisms like a long-term mortgage that pays for itself through energy savings over time. Meanwhile, technologies are moving fast in the clean tech space, which is great, says McLennan, but there's more to it than that.
1: I do track a lot of technologies. I am excited about a lot of different things that are out there. But more and more what I'm trying to communicate is that we have everything we need now. Not that I'm not excited about the next big thing, But we have a tendency to believe that we have to wait for this holy grail technology to come along. That, oh, that's that's all we needed, and that we can just sort of screw it in or plug it in, and we don't have to change. I want people to understand that the primary barriers that we face are not technological. They're human-centered. It's our systems and our people that need to change. We need to get rid of things that shouldn't be in our buildings. We need to stop making them all over the planet when they're meant to be made in a particular place for a particular use. And we need to change the way people think about how they operate the building and how they interact with it and how they use it. If we can do that, (laughs) then we will solve it. And then technology will have its proper
0: place in society, uh,
1: appropriate technology.
0: (laughs) If there really is a smarter, safer, more equitable and sustainable way to build, what's stopping us? Perhaps the deeper question is, what do we value? We have to
1: change what we value. The traditional statement is the buildings in terms of carbon is somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of our emissions. But if you reapportion the percentage of the transportation sectors impacts that are related to supporting the building sector and the industrial sector that's related to making the stuff (laughs) that goes into the buildings as well, and you reapportion it that way, then buildings become the single largest source. And they become a little over half of all our emissions. So it's a big deal. And if you think about from between now and 2030, that approximately half the buildings that will exist in 2030 don't yet exist. (laughs) <laughs> and the other half do exist. <laughs> so therein lies the challenge, that it's not an either-or thing. We have to change our building stock that we have now, and we have to completely improve their efficiency, and then we have to turn to, the, to how we design all new buildings.
0: We also have to train the workers who will construct new buildings and retrofit old ones. It's a 21st-century green jobs enterprise that could revive the construction industry. Call it an extreme green makeover. And what about individual citizens and communities? Is it too painful and too difficult to change our energy-gobbling habits? Jason McLennan offers this tale of why it might just be easier and faster than we think to just change.
1: There was an interesting thing that happened in Juneau, Alaska that hardly got any press. It didn't get any press because nobody was killed. And there was no sex scandal. (laughs) But it was an amazing uh, experiment in social change related to the environment. What happened was an avalanche came down and knocked out the whole city's power supply. The whole community of 30,000 or so people lost all their power in Juneau, Alaska. And immediately all the diesel generators kicked in. And so... Power was returned, but now running off a very expensive diesel. And so overnight, the residents saw a four to five times increase in their energy bill like that, overnight. And there are a lot of people that are barely able to make it and pay their bills, and suddenly they were racking up bills they couldn't afford. And it was a crisis in the community. One of the first things that happened was they ran out of clothespins and compact fluorescents at the hardware store, completely sold out. And other, you know, easy, simple efficiency measures. And everyone started to turn off lights, and they started to think about their energy use because they were in a financial crisis about the cost of energy. It wasn't high enough that everyone was in panic and everyone was doing things. And the town, within a couple weeks, produced their energy use by about 40%. And this is not with expensive solar panels. This is not with major retrofits. This is with understanding how they were using their energy a bit better, taking care of parasitic loads, all the energy use in the houses and offices that is being used when people aren't even using things like, like televisions. They're always sucking energy and managing those loads and doing these simple things. And the energy use went way down. Imagine if we had that attitude around the whole country, what we could do with climate change. And then if you start layering on the the bigger investments that you could make in terms of uh, windows and more insulation and better lighting control systems, we could go to 50 or 60% less energy use in this country. And suddenly... The amount of energy that we need to generate from renewable energy is 30%, 25%. And it's a completely different ballgame. And the living building challenge is kind of asking those questions on a building-to-building level. And if you look ahead to where energy costs are going and where these challenges from the economic standpoint are going, this is the kind of investment you should be making now.
0: Jason McLennan. Planting buildings, building change with the Living Building Challenge. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling one eight seven seven 877 bioneer That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org, where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive Producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior Producer, Neil Harvey. Managing Producer, Stephanie Welch. Production Management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station Relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Focus Audiovisual. Interview Recording Engineer, Jeff Westman. With thanks to Mark Summer. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a disc label. Additional music was made available by Silver Wave Records at silverwave.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the Underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the pioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0710. Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.